Lord, that's our prayer tonight, Lord, that you would create in us a clean heart. Lord, we know that doesn't come by our efforts or our good works, but by your great grace. Lord, I do pray, Lord, that help us all to walk in the center of your will, to be the men and women of God you've called us to be. Lord, we know that only comes when we're desperate for you. Lord, we ask as we go to your word right now, may you be our teacher. I ask that you'd use this marred and imperfect vessel for your glory. That it be your words and not man's that are spoken tonight. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. If, you don't have your, if you don't have a Bible with you, you will need one. So raise your hand. Amen? Raise your hand. If you do have your Bible, turn to Deuteronomy 31. We're going to look at the last portion of 31, and then we'll get into 32 tonight as well. Some of you I know only come on Wednesday night, and I'm a selfish guy when it comes to asking for prayer for my daughter, so I'm going to ask for it again. Some of you know my daughter's in India right now with doing, for a month with Gospel for Asia. So I just covet your prayer. She's out, they're out doing uh, street evangelism and showing the Jesus film and doing dramas on the street and tsunami relief. She's 17 years old, and i just in constant prayer for her. And, and that's my heart as any of us would go out, that you know, we'd be supporting each other in prayer. Amen? All right, Deuteronomy, let me catch you up quickly. Deuteronomy, second giving of the law. That's what Deuteronomy means. It means second law or second giving. It's Moses giving the law to the next generation. One generation has fallen in the wilderness because of their disobedience. They didn't enter into the land of promise when God called them to. And now even Moses has been disqualified because he smote the rock when he's supposed to speak to it. Moses seemingly was a man that was irreplaceable. If we looked at it from the world's perspective, this was the guy who led them out of the wilderness. As we talked about, he spent 40 years trying to be somebody, 40 years finding out he was nobody, and then 40 years finding out that God can use anybody. Amen? He was a prince, and then he was in the backside of the desert as a shepherd, thought his life was over, and then he ends up being the man that God uses mightily to lead the children of Israel out of bondage. We've talked about this before, bears repeating, Egypt, a type of the world, being delivered out of the world, crossing over the Red Sea, I believe a picture of water baptism, again an outward statement of an inward change, in the wilderness headed to the land of promise, for you and I, a picture of the Spirit-filled life. They cross over the Jordan, a baptism of the Holy Spirit, but sadly that entire generation missed out on what God had for them because they refused to enter into the land because there were giants there. And we can make the same mistake in our walk. We can be so fearful of the things of this world that we miss out on God's highest. May that not be so. Amen? May we be so in love with the Lord that the things of this world mean nothing in comparison to the greatness of our God. And so in this case, what's happening now is Moses is giving his final words. Chapter 31 begins on his 120th birthday. He's 120 years old. His days are numbered. And now he's giving the ministry away. And as we saw last week, some, some pictures of how to give the ministry away is by taking all the focus off of you and placing it on God, verses 1 through 6. So that's one of the keys in giving ministry away. It's not about man, it's about God. And nobody's irreplaceable but the Lord, amen? Every one of us can be replaced tomorrow. God doesn't need us, we need Him. And so it's so important that we get that focus and people start telling you how wonderful you are. You better deflect that right where it belongs, Amen? It belongs to the Lord. Touch not the glory. And so Moses says first, look, 
Get your eyes on God. Don't have your eyes on me. Then he identifies those who God has called. He equips them, encourages them, disciples them, puts ministry into their hands. The main person, of course, being Joshua, who would then take his place. He then places strong emphasis on the absolute necessity of the teaching, reading, and studying of God's Word. You want to give ministry away, get people into God's Word. I had a young man talking to me tonight, saying, Pastor Dave, how do you ever get over the fear and trembling of teaching the Bible? I said, I'll let you know when it happens. <laughs> I don't know. It's a good place to be. It's a good place to be desperate. We need to stay there. You stop being desperate, you better get out of the way because God can't use you anymore. You need to be desperate for God, and this was the heart. Look, i got to get God's Word into their hands because that's when I, that God can use them. And so then we also saw last week, or two weeks ago actually, that we're to see people through God's eyes. We're to have a desperate need for intimacy with God on our own, and then we're to look at others through the eyes of the Lord. You know, if I look at people through my eyes, I'm not going to like a lot of people. Is that true or not? Am I the only one? Right? Sometimes you see people and you just think, man, I don't, you know, I don't care if he gets saved. You ever felt that way? Don't, don't be lying. You've had that boss or that neighbor like, oh, yeah, hell's going to be hot for him, right? right? You may not have said it out loud, but you thought it. But the point is, we need to start seeing people through God's eyes. And as we saw with Moses last time, that it starts with his own intimate walk with the Lord. If we spend time in God's presence ourselves, it's going to impact us, and we're going to start to love people the way he loves them. We're going to start to see people through his eyes and have a burden and a passion for them. And so then we're going to pick up in verse 22, and then Lord willing, we're going to get into chapter 32 tonight as well, and we'll go until we run out of time, all right? And so what we're going to look at tonight is we're going to continue to look at him giving ministry away, but we're going to see that his heart continues to be on the emphasis of God's word. Even the song of Moses that he's going to write is in in some ways a miniature picture of the book of Deuteronomy, reminding them of what God has done for them reminding them of God's grace, but also warning them about what happens when you rebel against God. It was a song they were to remember. It was a song they were to sing and pass on to the next generation. So let's begin in verse 22 of chapter 31. And I love teaching verse by verse through the Bible because if you run out of time, this is what you do. You just pick up where you left off. Isn't it great? Bible rocks. It's great stuff. So Moses has been commanded by God to write this song. And he commands him to write this song. Remember, Moses is 120 years old. He's not young, but he's still strong because we know he climbs up Mount Nebo on his own. He wasn't because he was old that God stopped using him, but because he rebelled that God stopped using him. And the same is true for us. We're never too old to be used by God. If we're too old, we'd be in heaven. Amen? If you're breathing in and out, God still wants to use you. And so look what it says in verse 22, and I love this. Therefore, Moses wrote this song the same day. I talked about this last time. I love the fact that God told him to do something, and he did it that day. He's 120. He could have said, I got three million whiners in my church. I got a lot of other stuff I got to take care of right now. I'll do it next week, next month, next year. And as I said last time we looked at this verse, I want to encourage you, if God's calling you to do something, do it today. Amen? Don't wait till next week, next month, next year. You're just missing out on what God has for you. And I love Moses' heart. He could have said, it's my birthday. You don't want to get today off, right? But he didn't. Instead, he sat down. And when you see the song that he wrote, you're going to realize the intensity that this guy had to be in the center of God's will. Even after God said, you're not going into the land of promise, he finished strong. And I love that. 
Even if things haven't gone exactly the way you wanted to in your life, may we finish strong for the Lord. May we not look back and say, oh, I missed out on that, or oh, this is what I thought was going to happen. Let's just serve God and be obedient and be faithful right where we're at. And it says not only did he write it, but he taught it to the children the same day. Again, he wrote the song, then he gathered up the three million whiners. All right, get over here. He called them all in, and he taught them the song. And I love Moses. What a, what a great example. Again, he wrote a powerful song. It's the first song that was ever published, and we'll get to portions of it later on tonight. Look at verse 23. Now, not only did he do the work that very day, but now we're also going to see that he, again, is giving ministry away, and he's passing it on to those who are called by God. Then he inaugurated Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. Now the he that inaugurated Joshua is not Moses, it's God. Amen? Because he says, I will be with you, the land that I swore to them. And so God is commissioning Joshua to be the one to bring them into the land that Moses would not be able to. I know for some of you it will be the 10th time I've said it, but we have new people and I think it's again important to hear it. Moses is a picture of the law. He is the law, right? Moses, the law, wrote the Pentateuch. He could not bring them into the land of promise Joshua had to. Joshua's name is also can be transliterated. It's Yeshua, which is also Jesus. The law cannot bring us into the land of promise. Only Jesus can. The law can reveal our sin and our need for a Savior, but the law cannot save us. And so there's a clear picture, a typology in the Old Testament. Moses could not bring them in, and God used Joshua instead to bring them into the land. And again, I love this, I will be with you. Praise God that even in the midst of difficulty, we can know that we're never alone. That God will never leave us nor forsake us. And I love this very clear picture here because he'd already told them that there was going to be rebellion. But the Lord said, I'm going to bring him in. Joshua, just trust me and know that you're not alone. Even when you're outnumbered, even if everybody else is against you, if God is for us, who can be against us? So God's promise to the faithful, even in the midst of, the, of great rebellion, is I will be with you. Now lastly, in giving ministry away, we need to put the word into the hands of those who will protect it in the midst of a wicked, perverse, and stiff-necked generation. I'm going to share something from my, from my heart with you guys. You know, one of my biggest concerns, I, and I taught this at the, the pastor's conference a year ago, they asked me to do devotions. And, one of the, and here's what was on my heart to share with pastors. Every church, for the most part, denominations began really well. They started off with a passion for God, a love for His Word, and wanted to teach it without compromise. And over time, these great movements of God became memorials to what once was, and their buildings have become monuments to what God did a long time ago. And you know what happened in every case? They got away from the Bible. And what I said to the Calvary Chapel pastors is, you know what? God has done a great and phenomenal work through the movement of Calvary Chapel. We're not of Calvary Chapel, we're of Jesus, amen? amen. But at the same time, I want to say that God's done a great work. And you know what? This movement will become a memorial, and those who have buildings and not gymnasiums, their place will become a monument, right? If we get away from the Bible. God's word must be the thing that we keep at the forefront. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, our theme verse, Romans 10, 17. 
And so this is what's happening here. He's telling them, look, in giving ministry away, you want to put God's word into the hands of those who will protect it and make sure it continues to be taught. Because if you don't, the church will die. If we stop teaching God's word, lives won't be changed. We don't need to hear any more pop psychology. We don't need to hear seven steps to financial freedom or three ways to overcome your anger. We need to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead. We don't need to water down the gospel anymore. We need to point to the fact that we must be broken and we must, there must be repentance before there can be restoration. And quit apologizing for the fact that we must be born again. Amen? Not water it down, don't talk it down. And so this is the heart. Moses is going, okay, i got to get the word of God into the hands of those who will protect it because I'm leaving. And I want to make sure the word of God continues to be taught. And that's what the song of Moses is all about in chapter 32 as well. Look at verse 24. So it was when Moses had completing the writing the words of this law in a book, when they, were, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. Now, if someone said, hang on to this so this can be a testimony against you, I might lose that. But the point is he found faithful men. Now, what was already in the ark? Three things. Who remembers? Ten Commandments, Aaron's Rod, Manna. Okay? Again, all pictures of Christ, by the way. He's the fulfillment of the law, right? He's the good shepherd. The, the rod is a picture of the cross. And the manna, right? He is the bread of life. But the point is that within it were things that, again, the Ten Commandments alone condemn men of their sin. They were never to remove the mercy seat and look in on the law. Why? Because without the mercy covering the law, we're done. That's why the mercy seat was covering the law. Now, the Ten Commandments is enough to condemn us of our sin. We already know. That's it. That's enough. You take someone through the Ten Commandments, they'll know they're a sinner, or they'll be lying, which is another sin. Amen? So the point is that they already had the Ten Commandments there, but he said, I want you to take the book of the law. This is the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I want you to take it and put it in a separate box, and I want you to keep it next to the Ark of the Covenant. I don't want us ever to forget the law. I don't ever want us to get away from the Word, because as soon as we do, we'll start basing things on experiences. We'll start basing things on something other than the Word of God. Again, nothing new under the sun. It's happening today. People more involved in the experience than the Word. And the Word of God is what we need to have be the foundation in our lives. So all the words of the law, every single bit of it, and again, it was to be protected and given the same care as the priest gave the Ark itself. The Ark of the Covenant was so valued by them. And he said, I want you to put the Word right next to it. The Ark, again, is a picture. It's where the sacrifice was made. It's where the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, had the cherubim on either end. And again, very clear picture of the resurrection of Christ. Because when you went into the tomb, what did they see? Angels at the foot, angels at the head, blood sprinkled in the middle with the cloth, right? The same thing they would see when the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Again, a foreshadowing of Christ like everything else is in the Bible, amen? And so he said, it's not just the ark. We don't want to just trust in the ark itself, but you need to understand the word that makes us see our need for the sacrifice. 
It's the word that reveals the need for the sacrifice. And both of those things must be kept together. Verse 27. For I know your rebellion, your stiff neck. If today while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? He said, you know what? You need to have the word of God to be a witness with you because if not, when I leave, you've been rebellious while I've been here. This is Moses talking. You've been rebellious while I've been here. When I leave, how rebellious are you going to be then? I went away for 40 days once. I came down, you had a golden calf. Now I'm leaving. If you guys don't hang on to the word, who knows what in the world you're going to be serving and worshiping. And so his point was, hang on to the word. When we give ministry away, no matter where it is, we need to point people back to hanging on to the word of God. God's word was a witness against sin and rebellion. And if anybody knew about rebellion of the people, it was Moses. And without a standard, there is no rebellion. There's no sin. If we don't have a standard, there's no right and there's no wrong. And don't we see that in the world today? Why do they want to take the Ten Commandments down? I mean, does it blow your mind that people are going, thou shalt not murder. I can't be having that in front of me. Take that down. Why? Oh, it's convicting. Well, praise God. It's supposed to be. Amen? And they want to take it out. Take the Bibles out of school and, you know, let's get away from the Word of God. And then we now have the problems we've got in the world today because we're getting our eyes away from the Lord and off of His Word. Amen? And the point he's making here is keep the Word before you. And, and put it right there, because if you don't, I know your rebellious hearts, and if you don't have God's word in front of you, there'll be no standard. There'll be no right. There'll be no wrong. God's word is the authority, not man's opinion. We don't vote on what we think God meant by it. You know, the Jesus Seminar, ever heard of this? A bunch of people get together, they have black and white marbles, and they vote on whether or not Jesus really said what's in the Bible based on what they think. I said this on Sunday, I have to correct myself. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. You got a bunch of guys voting on whether or not the Bible's true. Let me make it real clear for you. It's true. Sit down. We're done, right? And the sad part is that people are more involved in what people think than what the Bible says. And this is Moses' heart. You guys, if you don't have the word, you're going to be so far away from God overnight. And I want you to put it right next to the ark. I want you to give it the proper priority. He'd already told him in a previous chapter to hand write out the entire book of Deuteronomy where everybody could see it. So they would not take the word of God away from before their face. You know what? If you're struggling in your walk with the Lord and you're walking in rebellion against God, you're not in the word. Because if you stay in the word, you'll be convicted. And when you are in sin, it'll drive you back to a place of repentance and brokenness and restoration. Amen? Amen. It's been said that this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And I want to encourage you, if you stay in the word, you're going to have, again, a much deeper and greater walk with the Lord. Verse 28. Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing. And call heaven and earth to witness against them. Is he pretty serious about this? He says, let heaven and earth testify of what I'm about to say. And bring the elders in here. I want everybody to know. He's protecting the word of God. And then he rebukes those who are in a position of authority. Prophetically, he's going to warn them of coming rebellion. And that the evil will come upon them. And again, the righteous anger of the Lord. And it takes a lot of heart to do what he's about to do. But praise God for people who are more worried about being obedient to God than 
popular with men. We need more of that. Now again, can I say something? Always do it in love. Always. The Word of God says that if you do it without love, it's like a clanging cymbal. You can have the greatest, most truthful words in the world, but if, you, you know, if you're self-righteous or you're looking down on people or if you do it with bitterness or anger, or you know, it's of no value, the Bible says. So speak the truth in love. As you've heard me say many times, love without truth is hypocrisy. Truth without love is brutality. That's why we must speak the truth in love. And Paul's heart is, you know what? I'm going to deliver the truth, or Moses' heart, Paul, that's Sunday mornings. Wednesday nights, Moses' heart here is to make sure that the word of God's delivered to these guys without compromise. Look at the rest of verse 29. For I, verse 29. For I know that after my death, you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I've commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of God to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. That's pretty bold, isn't it? He looks right at all the elders and says, you know, when I leave, I know all you guys are going to be perverse and wicked. You're going to be evil. You're going to go outside of God's will. I already know what's going to happen. And I'm testifying before God and the whole world, and I'm laying it right at your feet. Again, it's so much easier to say nothing than to avoid the potential conflict. When was the last time you shared with somebody that hell could be in their future? That's pretty hard to do, isn't it? Come across as a fire and brimstone holier than thou, you know, all that kind of stuff. Do you know Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven? Do you know the Bible talks more about hell than it does about heaven? Why? Because God wants to warn us that sin does indeed have consequences. Amen? Amen. Sin has consequences. Now, we don't share it. We share it out of love for somebody. If somebody, you know, was about to drink poison, wouldn't we try to tell them that this is going to kill you? Don't drink it. This will kill you. Stop, right? But you know what? Being separated from God has greater consequences than drinking poison. It's an eternity separated from Him. And it's easier just to say nothing. Oh, I don't want to stir anything up. I don't want my coworkers to think I'm holier than thou, Bible thumper, make fun of me. And, you know, they might ask me where Cain got his wife, and I won't know. And so I can't ask, you know what I mean? I mean, they might ask you something I don't know. So if I don't know the whole Bible, I can't share my faith. You know what you can share? Your testimony. Here's who I was. I met Jesus. Here's who I am. And you know what? We need to have that conviction. And this is Moses' heart. Is look, I'm here to bring the truth. And I'm telling you, you guys are going to rebel against God. Now that was a warning, wasn't it? It's still an opportunity for them to turn back to God, isn't it? And that's God's heart here. Verse 30. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. Now, the next 43 verses is the first published song in the Bible. Now, someone asked me last week or the week before if I've ever heard a song made from this chapter, and I said no. But after you read the chapter, you might know why. Because it's heavy. It's heavy stuff. This is not, you know, this is not singing about one of these days I'm going to see my Savior face to face. I mean, certainly there's a part of this that is very joyous, but there's very much of it that is condemning upon Israel. It's really more of a warning than anything else. So, Paul, so Moses is writing this song on his 120th birthday, on the very day God commanded him to do it, and he's going to teach this song that it might be brought to mind, that they might remember it in generations going forward. As much as I hate to believe it's true, I know it is. Sermons are forgotten. Amen? But songs are remembered. 
Isn't it amazing how you can hear a song from 1965 and you like, you, you just pick up and you know verse 3, right? And you're just singing the words. And you don't remember what I taught you on Sunday, right? And so the point behind this, the point behind this is that he's given them a song that was to be sung among the people that would drive God's heart and drive God's word into their hearts. That they would understand, that they would be forewarned, that they would be prepared for what was coming. And it was to be taught, handed down from generation to generation that they would remember the Lord. These 43 verses are clear and exhortive warning to be memorized, sang, and taught to the next generation. It was a reminder of, to Israel the character of God, the greatness of God, and all that He had done for them. And it's also going to remind them of their own character. We're going to see such a clear contrast tonight in the verses we will cover between the character of God and the character of man. The character of God and the character of Israel. How God treats man and how man responds to God. And we're going to see that that's why He's God and we're not. Amen? That's why He's on the throne and we're not. That's why I don't want to be. He's a great and an awesome God. And we're going to see again his, his next week, we'll see His divine vengeance. We'll see God's deliverance and atonement for His people. And again, remember as we're going through this, this was a song to be memorized. This was to be taught and remembered that they might have the Word of God and the heart of God constantly before them. Again, all a warning of God's righteous judgment against their rebellion. So here's what we're going to see in the Song of Moses. The character of God. Then we'll see the character of Israel. We'll see the goodness of God toward His people. Then we'll see the wickedness of Israel in response to God's grace. Then we'll see the faithfulness of God to discipline His people. The vengeance of God against His enemies. Then we'll see Moses exhort the children of Israel. And lastly, Moses going up to Mount Nebo to die. Unless you start to die yourselves, we're not going to go through all that tonight. All right? I promise. I'm glad you're in those hard chairs, though. You guys are more attentive. It's good. All right. I had those soft chairs on Wednesday. I thought, I, Sunday, I lost a few of you. All right. Now, the Song of Moses. Let's first begin with the character of God. You know what? If you were here last Wednesday, we were out under the pavilion. And because we're not able to really tape it effectively for our radio program, I taught something different. And we looked at Luke 11, and we looked at the model prayer. And if you remember how the model prayer began, it began with the person of who, who you're praying to, and then praise for his name. Notice how this song begins when we get to verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on, raindrops on the tender herb, as showers on the grass, for I proclaim the name of the Lord. First he says, give ear. In Hebrew, it means to broaden your ears, or in a sense, listen up. Listen up. Pay attention to what I'm about to share with you. Now again, he's giving, he says, give ear to my words. And he calls all of heaven and all of earth. He begins with a solemn appeal. Again, signifying the importance and the truth of what he was about to say. Let all the angels, let every man hear. Let the testimony of God be heard by all with heaven and earth as permanent witnesses. Again, he's making it very clear that these words were not to be taken lightly. Then he says there, let my teaching, the word there for teaching in, in Hebrew is where we get the word doctrine. Let my doctrine, let my teaching, let the truth, what I'm about to share with you, drop as the rain. Now I like that. He doesn't say let it be a thunderstorm on top of your heads. 
Let the rain fall down upon you. Let the truth come down upon you like rain, like the dew. And you know what this speaks to me? This is my heart when I read it. It speaks to me again about speaking the truth in love. It's not raining down the truth on someone's head like a thunderstorm, but it's lovingly and graciously delivering it to them with kindness. He said, let my words come upon you like rain, which is a blessing, right? Rain is a blessing. Rain is something that we need. This song was to refresh and revive those who heard it as water from heaven feeds, restores, and refreshes both the herb and the grass, as it's talked about here. Now, in the Bible, water represents a couple of different things. We see that water represents what? Holy Spirit and what else? Word of God. Ephesians says, sanctify your homes by the washing of the water by the word of God. And again, I believe, again, he's rain, he said, let it rain down upon you. There's a picture of the word of God being poured out upon them. Again, the emphasis here is on God's word being delivered to the next generation. Now look how he begins in verse 3 and 4 this song. For I proclaim the name of the Lord and I ascribe greatness to our God. Much again like the opening of the model prayer we looked at last week, he began by praising the person he's praying to or singing the song about in this case. You know what? We talked about this last week or two weeks. Yeah, it was last week. When we talked about the prayer itself, we talked about the importance of who we're praying to. Amen? We're not praying to, oh, the great essence up in the sky. I've heard people pray that way. You might as well be shouting down a well because you're praying to nobody. Amen? We pray to Almighty God. And we need to remember the attributes of the God that we're praying to and begin by praising His name before we do anything else. Our Father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name. I'm praying to the Father and holy is your name. And you know what happens? When I pray to the Father and I praise his name and his character and his attributes, it sure makes it easy for me to pray the rest of my prayer understanding who I'm praying to. It makes me realize that it doesn't matter if I have cancer, it doesn't matter how overwhelming my problems may look, when I realize who I'm praying to, I realize how clearly these things can be answered. Amen? And so it's so important that we begin our prayers that way. And that's how this song begins. The song of Moses begins by, I proclaim the name of the Lord and I ascribe greatness to our God. What a great way to start a song, amen? I ascribe greatness to our God, the character of God, the attributes of God. And again, in two brief verses, verse 3 and 4, Moses ascribes to the Lord greatness, perfection, justice, truth, faithfulness, righteousness. And then as we're going to see here, he describes him as the rock. Look what it says in verse 3, 4, excuse me. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. He starts off praising God. Can I encourage you to start your prayers that way? Begin your prayers by worship. Have it be an act of worship. And this is how he starts this song. Again, describing greatness to our God. Greatness, perfection, justice, truth, faithfulness, and righteousness. Now remember, this is going to be a song that was going to be sung by the children of Israel for generations to come. And they were going to begin the song by talking about the greatness of God and the attributes of God. And again, 
so that they might keep their eyes on the true and living God. And then he calls him the rock. Now this is the first time in the Bible that God is called the rock. Now we know that there's already been a rock in the Bible that was a picture of Christ. The rock that the water came from. They smote the rock and the water poured out. And now he calls him the rock. Again, making a clear distinction between the rock that had been taking care of their source of water, ministering to their needs, and now, again, the rock who God is. Now, what does a rock tell us about God in describing Him as a rock? It tells us that He is stable, He's strong, He's unchanging, He's faithful, and He endures. That's the God we serve. Jacob later called Him the stone of Israel. Jesus was frequently spoken of as the stone or the rock. Daniel, in one of his visions, called, referred to Jesus as the stone cut without hands that comes and smashes all the other kingdoms that come and would later fall. The Gospels, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. And he wasn't talking about Peter. Amen? If you think he's talking about Peter, come to church on Sunday because Paul blasts Peter. And if Peter was the first pope, right? We don't need any popes, by the way. But if Peter was the first pope, and he was really the guy that was in charge of everything, Paul wouldn't be getting after him for compromising with the Judaizers, which we'll see on Sunday in Galatians chapter 2. Peter, mighty man of God, but Peter, sinner saved by grace. Amen? And here's the thing, that the rock is Jesus. And he's the one the church is built upon. And so he's ascribing greatness to God, and he's the rock. You know, it's interesting, again, I love this, that the song begins with the greatness of God, and he so wants to just impart to them as they're going to struggle when they get into the land of promise. And what's going to be surrounding them? Who remembers? What's surrounding them? Nations that are filled with what? Idolatry. And, he's, and he wants them to sing this song so they'll remember the greatness of God so they won't be tempted by the false gods of this world. Can I tell you something? God has the answers. He is the great, the mighty counselor. We don't need to turn to the world for the answers. Jesus is the answer. He didn't just have, have them. He is it. He's the answer. And so this is his heart. Ascribe greatness to God so you won't stumble and start chasing after the world. But sadly, as we're going to see as we go through this song, that they don't heed the first words of this song. You know, the first step of any church falling away is when they start to make God less than He is. And when they start to surrender their high opinion of God, when they start to think they can become God, or they start to, again, talk about God as being, God doesn't know the future. What are you talking about? God doesn't know? I talked to people like that. I talked to a guy one time that told me that we know more about science today than Jesus knew. You're supposed to be a Christian. When someone says Jesus didn't know, he's God, amen? amen. And he's omniscience, which means all knowing, amen? Yeah, God didn't know. God has to learn something. God didn't learn anything. And what happens is, and he created science, created everything. But what happens is people start making God less. And when that starts to happen, get out of the way. You just, and this is the point he's making. Ascribe greatness to our God. Lift and magnify his name. Don't make him less than he is. You'll start to think a block of wood is as good as God. 
You'll start to think you can rub a big fat guy's belly and it's going to help you as much as praying to the creator of the universe. Why does that happen? It happens because they ascribe less to God than the attributes of who he really is. And that's the point. He begins the song this way, ascribe greatness to our God. Now we've seen the character of God. Now let's look at the character of Israel. It's going to change just a little bit. I'm being facetious. It changes a ton. Look what it says there in verse 5. They have corrupted themselves. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Do we see a little contrast between God and Israel? Do we see a little contrast between God and us? And again, that's the other thing that happens with cults. They start bringing God down and raising man up. They start making God less than he is and man more than he is. And he's saying, don't fall into the trap. Ascribe greatness to our God and understand that you have corrupted yourselves. How did they corrupt themselves in direct contrast to the character of God? Because as we're going to see later on in the song, they're going to turn themselves over to idol worship. Now, they are not his children. That means that even though God had a calling upon their lives, they could walk away from that calling. They can walk away from it. They can reject Almighty God and what He has done. Because they can only serve one master. You can't have two masters. You can only, you gotta, you know, as Bob Dylan said, you gotta serve somebody, right? You ever heard that song? The guy cannot sing, has no hair, I don't get it. But you gotta serve somebody. It may be the devil, right? And now, the point of that song is, though, it, even though he's not walking with the Lord, the point of that song is so true that we're all serving somebody. We all have a master. And he says, you're not his children. Why? Because you have turned away to serve other gods. You can't dabble with this God and serve our God at the same time. There's only one God in your life. Only one can be on the throne. You choose who to put on the throne of your life. Now this word here for blemish, because of their blemish, I find this really interesting. I did a word study in that word, and it's allusion to Mark's which idolaters would, ascribe, would inscribe or paint on either their forearms or their or the foreheads or their arms. They basically tattoo themselves with the likeness of their favorite idol. And he said here, you know what? Because of the blemish, because you've marked yourself and aligned yourself with an idol, you're not my children. You don't belong to me. You're not mine. Because you've aligned yourself with an idol instead, you've chosen another God, and you've aligned yourself with Him. Again, and He says there, in aligning with the false gods of this world, you are a perverse and crooked generation. The word perverse there in Hebrew means distorted or false. And the word crooked means crafty. So they were distorted, they were false, and they were crafty. And their sin had separated them from God. That's what sin does. God is perfect and holy. He cannot have sin in His presence. Well, we're all sinners, so we've got a problem. That's why Jesus came. That's why He suffered and died. That's why He's the only way and the only truth and the only life and the only path. Amen? Amen. Because nobody else could pay for your sin. Nobody could and nobody else would. But Jesus did. And so the point He's making here, again, is look... Because of that blemish, you are a perverse and crooked generation. You're no longer his children because you've aligned yourself with the idols and the gods of this world. Do you thus deal with the Lord? O foolish and unwise people, 
Is he not your father who, brought, who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Now what's interesting, he said, do you thus deal with the Lord? And what he's saying here, again in the original language, is this how you repay God for what he's done for you? God has done everything for you, and then you repay him by aligning with the false gods of this world and rejecting him. He, this is their song. Remember, they're going to be singing this. They're ascribing greatness to God, and they're talking about, we're a perverse and crooked generation. That's probably why there's no praise songs to this. We've blown it. We've marked ourselves with the, you know, the likenesses of the false idols of this world. We're no longer His children. We've separated ourselves from God. And then he says, is this the way you treat your father? Is this how you repay him? Can I tell you that as I've been studying this, it convicts me about my own walk. How am I repaying the Lord for what He's done for me? Now again, I can't do anything without Him, because without Him I can do nothing. But my, and again, my works don't save me. It's not faith or works, or faith plus works, it's faith that works. And it's so important that those things come out of my life, but I, my heart breaks that my walk isn't stronger. And you know what? I pray that I never get past that. Because you know what? We should always desire to be closer to the Lord because we always can be. Amen? Amen? And that ought to be the heart of every one of us. And so he's saying here, look, is this the way you repay your father? Oh, foolish and unwise people. The word for foolish there is stupid. Oh, stupid people. You guys are dumb. This is what Moses is saying. And you know what? I can't think of a better word for somebody that would turn away from the Alpha and the Omega and Almighty God who's, who loves them so much, who created them, who led them through the wilderness, who, who poured out His blessings upon them, who's going to lead them into the land of promise, and they're going to turn around and serve a block of wood. Stupid fits, doesn't it? It fits. I have people get mad at me when I use that word sometimes, but it's in the Bible. He says it right there, oh, foolish. And you know what? Our heart ought to be broken for people that have fallen into that trap. We should not be self-righteous or pointing fingers at them. Our heart should be broken for them. Amen? Man, broken. Lord. Because it breaks my heart that people are following so many lies. In Santa Cruz County, how many gods do you think are being served in just this county? Man, it's unreal. And it just breaks your heart. Because they can know the true God. The living God. And we need to be the ones to introduce them to the truth. The sin of turning away from God to serve idols and even more foolish and unwise is even more foolish and unwise in light of all that God had done for them. Look what it says there. Is He not the Father who bought you? He purchased you. Is He not the God who made you? Is He not the God who established you? He made you. He created you. He fixed you. He formed you. He framed you. He provided for you. This is the God we're talking about. Where else are we going to go? As Peter said, who else has the words of eternal life? Are you going to forsake me too? That's what Jesus said. Well, where else are we going to go? You know what, guys? Aren't you glad there is nowhere else to go? Aren't you glad we don't have to keep looking for a higher path or a better way? And the point he's making here again is, why are you... This is the God who loves you. This is the way you treat your father. He's a great God. It's foolish to forsake their loving creator and deliver almighty God to pursue the dead idols of their pagan neighbors. You know, for both Israel and, and, I, and you and I today, 
God is good and you're not. That's the application. And we need to be desperate for Him and seeking only after Him and pursuing Him with our whole heart. Our willful sin and disobedience has separated us from God, but praise the Lord He loved us enough to send a Savior who could restore sinful man back to holy God. So the Song of Moses, we've seen the character of God in the clear contrast with the character of Israel. We're going to finish up tonight by looking now at the goodness of God toward His people. In spite of their wickedness, in spite of their foolishness, in spite of their ungodliness, look at how great and gracious our God is. Look at verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show your, you, your elders, and he will tell you. Remember all that God has done for you. This is a theme of the entire book of Deuteronomy. He says to them, remember all that God has done for you. You know one of the things that I'm going to start doing again that I haven't done for a few years that I used to do faithfully is I had a prayer journal. And you know what? Can I tell you the prayer journals are awesome. Because you know what happens? You pray, and I'd write down what I was praying about, and then I would go back and look at a prayer journal six months later with a highlighter and highlight God's answered prayer. And I'll tell you what, God answers every prayer. Sometimes He says no, but He answers every prayer, amen? And the point is, it would just reestablish in me the greatness of the God I serve and how He cares about every detail of my life. He's in, he loves me. He that knows me best loves me most, and that blows me away. And here's the God that we serve, and he's saying to them, remember the days of old. Remember the things that God has done for you. Go ask your father, he'll show you. Go ask the elders, and they will tell you. And you know what? This is an indictment or an encouragement to every father that we need to be showing our kids the greatness of our God. We need to be showing them by the way we live it out in front of them. And ask the elders... You know, those who are more mature in the faith, let them tell you. We need to be taught and encouraged by those who have been walking with the Lord longer than we have. Again, he's reminding the next generation of all that God has done for them. That he's delivered them, protected them, provided for them. He's directed them. He's delivering the law to the next generation. And then ask your dad. Ask your father. He'll show you. Ask the elders. And, he will tell, and they will tell you. Verse 8. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when He separated the sons of Adam, He set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Man, I love this kind of stuff. Let me tell you what this is all about. When the Most High divided the nations, this happened in Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis chapter 10, God set up the boundaries of the ancient nations. He put them on earth and He put them where He wanted them to be. God's in control. And he puts them where he wants them to be. And God is the one who ordered where man would be upon the earth. When he separated the sons of Adam, when he divided humanity, he divided them up, he sent them out. Now it's interesting, when you go to Genesis chapter 10, that there were 70 nations. 70 nations that went out. We know that God sent them in different directions. They didn't heed him. They went to the valley of Shinar. And what did they do? They built a... Tower of Babel, God changed all their languages, and they all scattered to where God wanted them to be to begin with. Amen? We need to get there walking with the Lord or get there babbling to ourselves, right? But the point is we should just walk in obedience to the Lord. But the point is there were 70 nations that went out. Now what I love about this 
that we see here in this verse, according to the number of the children of Israel. In Genesis 46, when Jacob went down to Egypt, you guys remember that story? Joseph is in Egypt. He's serving as a prince or prime minister of Egypt. His own brothers had sold him into slavery. God had blessed him, and he had fallen and risen and fallen and risen. And now he's the prime minister. His own family is starving, right? They come down into Egypt, and eventually he, they find out who he is, and they all come back as a family into Egypt. And if you look at Genesis chapter 46, guess how many people are in the, quote, nation of Israel at that time? Seventy. The Bible rocks. The fact that it had very clearly said that he numbered the nations according to the, what does it say in that verse right there? The number of the children of Israel. Again, when people say, oh, the Bible, you know, it's just a bunch of stories. And I haven't said this in a while, so I'll say it. 66 books, 40 authors, three continents, three languages, over 1,500 years with one central theme and no contradictions. And how is that possible? Because God wrote it. Amen? And when you look at the Bible in its entirety, and, and every chapter has got nuggets like this, where you just see, man, God's hand is so clearly on everything. Nothing happens by chance. God is in control. What a peace there is in that. Amen? We can get all, get all uptight. Who's in control? God is. Oh, that's right. They can't vote God out of office. He's still going to be God. Amen? No matter what, no matter which Supreme Court justice gets in, God's still going to be God. No matter what happens, God's God. I love that. It's so much peace that comes from it. So I love it here. Now, it's interesting that 70 is a number we keep seeing with Israel. 70 nations, 70 people. Now, what about Moses? He appointed how many elders? 70. Gideon had 70 sons. Ahab had 70 sons. How many years was Israel in captivity in Babylon? 70. Because of the 70 Sabbaths they stole from God. Remember he told them every seven years to rest a year, and they went 490 years without giving God a, without giving it its rest, and God said, okay, I'll just take all 70 of them at one time. And he put them in captivity in Babylon. It's also interesting that Daniel's prophecy concerning the Messiah speaks of 70 weeks. And also we see that Jesus' rule of forgiveness is to forgive 70 times 7. Amen? Now, it would be great if I could come up with some really profound reason why 70 is I don't know. But I'll tell you what, I love the fact that it's all in there, amen? Now, we do know that 7 is the number of what? Completion. It's times 10. I don't know, multiplied completeness? I don't know, but God knows. But I love the way the Word of God just fits so perfectly together. God's plan for all humanity is centered around Israel. Now, you might say, well, is that still true today? Well, do you think God still has a plan for Israel today? Yes. There's no question. If you don't think so, you're not paying attention. Israel's the size of New Jersey. And it's in the news every day. And everybody's fighting over the West Bank. It's like, you know, the size of Santa Cruz or smaller. It's amazing, isn't it? That one little spot. Why? Because it's part of God's plan. It's all part of God's plan. Only nation to cease and to come back into existence. It's all according to God's perfect will. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. Israel. Jacob's name means what? Israel is the place of his inheritance. The Lord's portion is his people. God's people are his treasure. He had a special plan for Israel as they were his own people. And he made sure that the land that they had would be adequate. 
It's within that land that the redeeming work of salvation took place. Where was Jesus crucified? Israel. Where was he born? Where, all the, the, where did all of these things take place that we see in the Bible? In God's land, amen? And so it's, it was all part of God's divine plan. This is all right within the land of promise where the promise came, Jesus Christ, amen? And so all of this is so important, you guys. And sometimes people look, and I have to confess to you, I think sometimes we, we look at Israel and people almost worship it. Don't do that. Okay, don't worship it. But, I want to encourage you, if you haven't been to Israel, you should go. Because it's the Bible in 3D, amen? And those of you who go next March, we're going to sit at 50 to 60 spots and teach the Bible where it took place, and you'll never forget it. Great stuff. But it's not the land that saves us, it's the God of the land who saves us, amen? And it's so important to understand that. But right here he says, the Lord's portion is his people, and Jacob is the place of his inheritance. Do you think as they sing that verse, they might be encouraged? Right? They're singing. This is a song. And no doubt, they were encouraged by those words. The land of Israel was then and is now still special to the Lord. You and I are his treasured possession today, and I love that. Well, one more verse. Look what it says in verse 10. He found him in a desert land and in a wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him, he instructed him, and he kept him as the apple of his eye. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Israel. And what does he say about them? He brought them out of a desert land. What's he talking about? Egypt. He's reminding them, again, of all the great things God has done for them. He's reminding them. You know what? I think it's good for us to sometimes look back. Again, don't dwell on your sinful past. But I think it's good for us to sometimes remember what God's delivered us from. I sometimes think about the person I would be if I had never gotten saved. And it scares me. I think, what a disaster. You know what I mean? Wow, I just wouldn't be good. I wouldn't want to know me, you know? And the point, and again, so he's reminding them, you were in a desert land, you were in bondage in Egypt, and God delivered you. Not only did he deliver you, look what it says in that verse, he encircled him and he instructed him. Remember when they were traveling through the wilderness that the cloud was above them. Remember that? And he led them through the wilderness. And he protected him from the enemies surrounding him. He wiped out the, the Egyptian army. He not only delivered him, but he protected him. And it's the same thing he does for us. He delivers us out of bondage to sin, and now he protects us. And he watches over us, and we're his treasure possession. And nothing happens to us unless God allows it. And again, he didn't wait till they got their act together before he brought them out of the wasteland. And aren't you glad? He didn't wait to say, okay, when you guys get, you know, get, start doing things a little better, then I'll come back. Quit with all your problems and your struggles, and then we'll talk about it. I'm glad that he took them when they were in a wasteland, and they were slaves, and they were murmuring, and they were a mess, and he delivered them. And all they did was they cried out to the Lord, and he delivered them. That's all we must do to be delivered from our sin is cry out to the Lord. Nothing else. Not quit smoking, quit drinking, quit struggling, quit with my bad habits, quit with this, quit with that, and then come to God. It's just come right where you are, amen? And he will deliver you, and praise God for that, and I love that example here. It says he encircled him and he instructed them, again, through his word, through Moses. He kept him as the apple of his eye, and we'll close with this. The apple of your eye is your pupil. And I love the fact that he refers to, to the way he protects us is the way he would protect the apple of his eye. 
You ever been hit in the eye? Ever been poked in the eye? I remember playing football in college one time, and a guy threw my face mask, poked me in the eye. It was worse than getting shot. I mean, I'm on the ground. I'm worthless. I'm out for, the, for a quarter. You know, my eye hurts. And your pupil, right? You just protect it. And I think, man, that's how much God cares about me. It's a reflex, right? Something comes towards your eye. What do you do? No one has to tell you. You might want to protect that. I mean, you automatically do it, right? And we are the pupil. We are the apple of his eye. He cares so much for us. It says in Zechariah, for thus says the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath, hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you, for he touches you, touches the apple of his eye. He's telling Israel, you know, when the enemy comes against you and they touch you, it's like, it's like poking the Lord in the eyeball. Someone comes after you, it's like poking the Lord in the eye. I feel sorry for them. Think about that. You're the apple of his eye. You're his treasured possession. He loves you so much. Well, I'm going to stop there so I have people come to church next week. But you know what? I want to encourage you to read the rest of it because from this verse on through 14, he continues to talk, or 18, or 14, yeah. He continues to talk about the things God had done for them. And then we see again just the transitions all the way through. And think about this as being a song that God used to keep the promises of God, the faithfulness of God, and also to warn them, as we're going to see toward the end of this chapter. And I want to encourage you, read verse 35, the greatest sermon I believe in the history of the United States was preached from verse 35 by Jonathan Edwards in the 1600s and it brought about the Great Awakening. And it's, called, it's, called, it's talking about the uh, sinful man in the hands of an angry God. And you know what? Our God is a God of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, but He's also a God of righteous judgment. And we need to understand that. And so we, this song was to be sung to remember God's grace, to remember His goodness, but to warn them of the consequences of walking in rebellion to Him. Amen? Can I encourage you? Spend more time with the Lord this week. Start off praising His name. And thank God that He loves you so much. That you're the pupil or the apple of His eye. Doesn't that blow you away? What a great God we serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we just thank You, Lord, for Your love and Your grace and Your infinite mercy. Lord, I just know for myself that I think about all the wicked, vile things I've done in my lifetime, Lord, and that I would be the apple of your eye. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, I pray you'd help all of us, Lord, to have a greater love and a greater passion for you. Lord, to not take our sin lightly and act like it's no big deal. But Lord, just in light of what we'll see next week, that sin does have dire consequences. Lord, that sin's not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. Because it's going to hurt us. It's going to harm us. It's because you love us that you instruct us the way that you do. Lord, I just thank you for your love and grace. And I do pray for those in this county who don't know you. I pray for those who are caught up in chasing after the vain idols like we saw in the text tonight. Lord, in the foolishness of the things that they're attracted to. Lord, may we provoke them to jealousy with the truth of who you are in our lives. So, Lord, we love you. We praise you. You're a great and awesome God. We can't wait to see you face to face. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until you do, may we be busy about your work. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. All God's people said, amen. amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.